Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. All right, Anderson, thank you very much. Excellent coverage tonight. I'm Chris Cuomo. Welcome to primetime. Reality is sitting in for this president. He is about to be impeached in all likelihood. What's unreal is how in this final moment that could define how this goes, he's trying to burn down the house in a letter for the ages that the speaker is calling sick tonight. Here's the letter, but you will not believe what's in it, but more importantly, what it does to this president. It is some of the wildest Trump arguments yet. A night like this, if you compare it with what Bill Clinton did, and we'll do that tonight, you'll see how the choices you make can lead you to very different places. We have Clinton's former chief of staff here to talk about what impeachment was for them and how different than what it is that we're dealing with right now. Let's get after it. All right, look, like I said, I hold in my hand this six-page letter. It's unlike anything I've ever seen from a sitting president, really anything I've ever seen even from Donald Trump marshalling the weight of the world's most powerful office to declare himself as the sole arbiter of what actions are impeachable. Have you read this? He does so without any kind of real deep thought. It's just a stream of consciousness uh, bombarding you with mistruths, with lies, with personal animus, and a staggering lack of comprehension for the reality that he now finds himself in, and as a result, the rest of us do as well. Set aside the absurdity that is littered throughout this thing. Again, you can read it for yourself. Here's some of the highlights. He says Pelosi has cheapened the importance of the very ugly word impeachment, that she views democracy as her enemy. Or when the sitting president in an official letter declares, declares an attempted coup is underway. The basic facts that he tries to present are not on his side. He attempts to defend his conversation with the president of Ukraine by saying he put the transcript of his phone call immediately out. But the call happened in July. We didn't see a word of it until September. And remember when that was. It was after the whistleblower went public. As for his instance that every time I talk with a foreign leader, I put America's interest first, We wouldn't know. His White House quit releasing readouts with calls of foreign leaders. And now they just changed the rules so even fewer can hear what he says. There's been a dozen between two that you should hear, though. I have uh, President Putin. Uh, He just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be. I keep playing that because it was the most embarrassing moment I've had as an American vis-a-vis Our president in Helsinki before the world next to Putin, the guy responsible. You can see a little smile on his face as the president threw his own country under the bus. But he just keeps talking to him and obviously taking his advice. All this is undercut in the very next paragraph where the president blows up any argument. This was about broader corruption fighting by launching into a tirade against Joe Biden. 
He offers up the Sharpie-worthy testimony of his donor buddy turned ambassador, Gordon Sunland, despite the questions that persist about, I don't even know whether that call happened. The White House won't give us proof of it. The State Department won't give us proof of it. It just happens to have the president saying everything he needed to say to clear himself from this, using language that only the whistleblower used, certainly not the Latin that this president is used to saying. So I don't even know that it happened, but he uses it and states it as fact. He ignores the full context. And none of this is new for this president. He teed off on another favorite target, House Intel Chair Adam Schiff, for what he calls shameless lies, fantasy language, despite the fact that Schiff said this at the same hearing. Well, it reads like a classic organized crime shakedown. Shorn of its rambling character and in not so many words, this is the essence of what the president communicates. Look, while we're pointing out the factual mistake, there's also the president's insistence that you found nothing when it comes to the Mueller report. In fact, the special counsel listed at least 10 instances of potential obstruction, and he clearly wanted to leave it for Congress. And he also said this, Mr. Mueller, about the president's conduct. The president was not exculpated for the acts that he allegedly committed. Look, I think the Democrats should be scrutinized for not including those in the articles of impeachment. Well, why? Because back then they were saying those were impeachable acts. They were talking about impeachment then. That was their play and arguably a misplay and one that Pelosi didn't want to follow until she ultimately had to. So now they don't even include them. I think that's worthy of scrutiny if you're going to have one for the history books. And look, make no mistake, Donald Trump can be a uniquely skilled politician. But when it gets personal and he gets into the mode of him or anybody and anything else, this letter is what you get. He can't admit that he did anything wrong, so he must be the victim. Bemoaning the great damage and hurt inflicted upon wonderful and loving members of my family. The irony here is that there's a long line of families like Gold Star Father Kazir Khan and 16-year-old Greta Thunberg who have felt the pain of being targeted by the most powerful man on the planet. People don't go after him and his family the way he does others, and even if they did. Since when is the President of the United States equal to his worst opponents? There is one person in his office. He is arguably the most powerful person in the world. And yet people around him, and obviously he himself, believe that it is okay for him to act the same way as his worst opponent. Since when has that been the standard of conduct for a sitting president, for a higher power, for someone who believes in that? And yet here he is, assuming he speaks for all Americans of faith, by attacking the speakers, saying, You are offending Americans of faith by continually saying, I pray for the president. Does he not understand prayer? Prayer doesn't change things. It is an attempt to change people. It would be Pelosi asking for help for him, but in as much doing that, help for herself to deal with her situation. That's what prayer is. It's not magic. And it's certainly not offensive to anybody of faith. If we had more prayer from our people in elected office and from all of us, we'd be in a better place no matter what you believe. Now, the statement's not true. It's not offensive, unless you mean it in a negative sense. It's a terrible thing you're doing, but you'll have to live with it. Not I, he says. Not I? Can you really believe that what you said and what you did doesn't follow you? 
Now, look, I'll let you decide for yourself what this letter says about our president. And just the mere notion that he takes prayers on his behalf as an affront. I have repeatedly said, I'm not sure if removal from office is the appropriate remedy. I don't even know if impeachment is the right mechanism here because the founders did not anticipate one party refusing to do its job in this situation and just out of deference stand in defense of a president. I don't think they encountered that. What they were worried about was someone like the Democrats right now in power just using numbers to muscle through a case. But that's not what this is. We've never seen the party of the president refuse. And Clinton, 31 Democrats voted to move forward with the inquiry. Five voted to impeach him. He was saved by Republicans in the Senate. Why? Because Clinton worked to get things done while he was impeached. And there were foreign entanglements that he handled the right way. And that boosts a president. God forbid we have to see that in this situation. He wound up at 73% because of how he handled it. And he apologized. He apologized his heart out. That matters. Not this president. There's a big difference between discussing the weight of the moment and accusing Democrats of violating their oaths of office, breaking their allegiance to the Constitution, declaring open war on American democracy. These are things that a pundit should think about saying, let alone a president. Are you really going to use the power of your office just for the sake of your own protection to threaten the democracy and have the millions and millions of people who, for whatever reason, believe what you say to believe that we're at war, that our democracy is tearing apart and people like me and anybody who you see as a critic is an enemy? Do you really want that? And would you be comfortable living with the consequences of people acting on your ambitions? I hope you think about it, because tomorrow we will be at the most sensitive period in our collective history since this presidency. This is heavy stuff, and it's going to hit hard in a way that we will have to deal with. The Constitution made what the duty was for this House, and it is clear. I have argued many times. I don't know about this mechanism when you know you have no buy-in from both sides. But if you're going to look at what they were worried about, the founders, he checks every box. You want to oppose, that's fine. You want to criticize them and say they're not doing it the right way, that's fine. You want to say you don't agree, that's fine. But if you want to say that they're enemies of democracy, you better think about it. If you want to try to bring in that people who believe in something higher than themselves, that they should see these Democrats as inimical to their faith, you better think about it. And if you're going to listen to it in a way that you're going to think about whether or not you accept it as truth, you need to think about it, too. You are not lemmings. You are not sheep. This man is your president. These people are the elected officials that you put in office. But do they not rule you? You rule them. You gave them this power. And tomorrow you're going to have to think about where it has brought us. And we're going to have to figure out where we go from here. Point of perspective. When it was Hamilton and he was trying to make the case about what this would be, And who to hope you'd never have to deal with? He quoted this. The hope to aggrandize themselves by the confusions of their country. That's fancy. He was a genius. This is simple. Beware a leader that takes what he knows is sensitive, what he knows could divide, and takes that string in his hand and yanks it for all it's worth because he wants to put more cushion under his own feet. Where does it leave the rest of us? 
There's a lot in this letter. But right in the middle is this paragraph. You are the ones interfering in America's elections. You are the ones subverting America's democracy. You are the ones obstructing justice. You are the ones bringing pain and suffering to our republic for your own selfish, personal, political and partisan gain. I will tell you this. The facts make it very clear that all of those allegations apply equally or greatly more so to this president. We are in this situation because of what he did. Rudy Giuliani is in the situation that he's in largely because of what this president did. He was an agent, not a principal. He was inserted like a virus into our diplomacy to get the very special thing that Trump wanted and that only he wanted and that he wanted for himself. He didn't even have to do it this way. If Mr. Giuliani finds proof about Biden's perfidy or any illegality, I welcome it on this show because you deserve that truth. But it still doesn't make what this president did right. It still makes it impeachable. Why? Because how you use your power matters. And if you thought something was wrong with Biden, go to the DOJ, go to your friends in the Senate. Why did you not? Because you know that this looks better politically. Let the stink be on somebody else, not on me. That mitigates it. Mr. Trump is very savvy. He always has been. And he knows how to play us like a fiddle. He's doing it again tonight, having me recite his letter. So why do I do it? A little bit because that's what's happening in the media. But I don't have that excuse, not on this show. You know that this is about our unique take on what's going on. I do it because I want you to know what he is willing to do to defend himself. And just remember this. In that call that he calls perfect, he ordered a favor. He made it a favor. A favor is not for us. It's for the person asking it. This is what he says. Mr. President, do you take any responsibility for the fact that you're about to be impeached? No, I don't take any, uh, zero, uh, to put it mildly. Look, the letter is the perfect illustration of why. Despite what he says in front of the cameras, you will never see this president testify under oath about any of this. Because his main inclination is to fight the truth, to find a way to get away from it, not to admit it. Six pages tells you everything you need to know about where his head and his heart are. And you're not mentioned in it anywhere except to drive a wedge between me and you and anybody else that he sees as an opponent. Just know that. All right. TV is about time. I took too much time here at the top because this show should be about the guests. But I've never told you anything that matters more than what I'm talking to you about tonight. I am worried about where we are. I believe this country is stronger than any single situation. I think its institutions will outlive us all and for good reason. And they will only get stronger with time and with generations that understand each other better than we apparently do today. But I do have to remind you, this is very heavy and it is not going to last just a day. Tomorrow is a vote. Every day after that, including the Senate trial and way beyond, is going to be the effect of those events. And God willing, we will be in it together because in this country, that's all we have now. Bill Clinton was in the same boat 21 years ago. We have to look at how he handled it and what difference it made in that process. We have former Clinton chief of staff, John Podesta. He's next. Thank you for listening to what I had to say. Uh, 
Now, President Bill Clinton's former chief of staff, John Podesta, is here. Welcome to primetime. I haven't seen you in a while. The best for the holy days to you and your family. You know, I was going to go through this exercise with you uh, because, as, as you all should remember, it was Podesta's emails uh, that was really the largest part of the trove of the hack of the DNC server. Uh, I wanted you to help us understand that there was no server, that it was a cloud system, so there's nothing to be in Ukraine. But you know what? If people don't know that, it's because they don't care about it at this point. So forget it. Exactly. You made a very different decision, Podesta, in how to handle impeachment with the president. What decision, what led to the decision you guys made about how to handle impeachment and messaging of the same? And what difference did it make in your situation? Well, look, I think we respected the process that we were going through. We didn't think the president should be uh, impeached or removed from office. We fought about that with uh, people on Capitol Hill, but we respected the process. Our lawyers uh, participated in the process. Witnesses were called. Uh, We made the arguments and ultimately prevailed. The American people uh, stood with the president. I think they uh, they understood that he was doing a job for them and was spending his time uh, continuing to that do that job. That was the key. You guys and called I it think- compartmentalization. The president went on an ambitious agenda. Uh, unfortunately, we had some foreign entanglements going on in Iraq and elsewhere that he had to deal with, and the government dealt with it well. It always helps the president. But he decided, again, this compartmentalization, let me get things done. The approval rating wound up being at 73 percent job approval. His personal approval was a different story. But what went into that calculation? I think that, w- that uh, you know, first of all, he admitted what he did was wrong and, and apologized first and foremost to his wife and family and to the American public. But then he moved on and said, I got elected to do a job for the American people. And my best defense, essentially, is just to do my job uh, uh, not uh, spend my time in uh, self-pity and wallowing in the kind of statement you just read that the uh, president uh, offered up, uh, but to do, do the job he was elected to do. And I think that proved to be a good judgment, the right judgment. American people saw that. They saw that that he was spending his time, uh, as you said, on foreign policy matters, mm-hmm. but also on, on domestic policy and trying to get things done, uh, serving up the uh, budget, the State of the Union. We, in fact, had a pretty productive uh, 1999 following uh, the impeachment and the trial in right. the Senate. Uh, he prosecuted the uh, and reversed the ethnic cleansing going on in Kosovo. We ended up with uh, major agreements with the speaker on on things like providing health care to people with disabilities. Right. Well, so it, became, we, it created know, we, a different dynamic kept, when it became we kept clear. Our nose to the grindstone right. When it became clear that work. Clinton wanted to do deals. Uh, no politician in a position of power can really ignore that because they were going to get both what they wanted anyway. They were going to impeach him anyway. But it wound up making a difference uh, in the Senate and in the climate of the country. Where do you think this current process leaves us? Leaves us? He's going to be impeached tomorrow in all likelihood. We don't know how many Democrats uh, won't go along with it, but it should happen. Where does this leave us at the end of the day? Well, you know, I think uh, nobody really knows. I think you see the leader in the Senate, uh, Mr. McConnell, saying he's already prejudged the case. He doesn't. So he gets uh, acquitted and it's quick. He's impartial. Then what? what? Uh, You know, I still think there's an important element to having the trial in the Senate. The American people has a a deserve to uh, see that they want it. Uh, The uh, Washington Post ABC poll just showed that 71 percent of the people think that his top aide should come uh, before the Senate. Sixty four percent of Republicans think they should testify. And I think that's an important, as you were noting in your opening, it's important to educate the public about what really happened. The fact that he actually 
uh, leaned on, extorted, asked for a favor uh, of a foreign leader to interfere in our democracy. And I think that getting those witnesses who were in the room with him, who he ordered not to testify before the House, uh, is an important function. I think uh, Senator Schumer's asked for a very limited number of uh, witnesses. I think that's wise. Uh, he's asked for similar treatment, a truncated process, but a real process. And I think the American people want to see want to see a trial. And for McConnell to say that, well, there shouldn't be any witnesses in a trial. Well, what is a trial well, if it's not? He to said hear something the different evidence. as all the Republicans did when they were on, on the other side of it. But to be frank, yeah, the Democrats absolutely. were making a lot of the same arguments they've been making now. They just have a better set of facts than the Republicans had uh, back in 98, 99. Well, you know, you quoted the, the founders. What the right. founders were worried most about and why they included the impeachment clause and the emoluments clause was foreign interference right. in our democracy. We we're a young democracy. Uh, we were susceptible uh, to foreign interference. Uh, and I think they were worried about right. that. And that's why they they included it. That's why they didn't make a king. They had a president. Right. Uh, and I think that the facts in this case are really right at the heart of what they were worried about. John Podesta, thank you very much for your perspective. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ritz. All right. Now, what Bill Clinton did not have at the time of his impeachment, uh, that was a trial stacked with a majority of jurors from his own party. Remember, the Republicans were in control of the Senate, not the Democrats. And he didn't have a Fox News uh, to use as a trumpet for his own cause. And he didn't have this kind of loyalty. Where does it leave us? I want to talk to Republicans on this show. You always know that. I believe in perspective. And I believe that if we don't get there together, we get nowhere. So let's talk to an impeachment player next. President Trump had an army of GOP defenders during the impeachment process in the House. Now, some of the loudest may be back for the Senate trial. Where does this leave us? Where does it leave the GOP? Where does it leave the country? GOP Rep Tom Reed is here. It's good to have you on primetime. I wish you and the family the best for the holy days. He's going to get impeached. You You can have an argument about whether or not you think what he did warrants it. Uh, I know that if I were to quiz you, you would say you wouldn't do what he did. If I were to ask you, would you say that Nancy Pelosi looks like her teeth are falling out? You'd say, no, I wouldn't say that. Am I correct? I would agree with uh, with those uh, general conclusions that, uh, you know, what this rhetoric has devolved down to is just the the worst of partisan politics, in my humble opinion. But I think that one aspect of it is that the idea that it is universal is untrue. That letter today could only be penned by one president, by one man in elected office right now. Not even Steve King would say the kinds of things that he did. And Tom, I'm telling you, you and I know each other. Um, I had Sean Duffy on here last night. I like and respect Duffy. And he could not say, yeah, he shouldn't have said that about Nancy Pelosi. It was wrong. All he can say is what I hear from all of you, which is you got to look at the other side, though, Chris. You got to look at what they say about him. He's frustrated. He's angry. People beat you up, Tom Reed. You're going to have a tough election this time, too. Would you talk about the teeth of your opponent? Would you say he's a bum and he's bad for democracy and he's an enemy? You don't talk like that, but you won't tell Trump not to. And that's why he won't stop doing it. Well, I've always had a personal relationship with the president. I've expressed my concerns with him personally. I don't talk about it and throw bombs on uh, the public airways. But the bottom line 
is this. I mean, he wrote it. it. It's for the American people to judge that letter. I appreciated your reference in your opening segment about that people can read this letter. They can hear what the president is trying to say. I understand what the president is frustrated with. I understand that this partisan politics is dividing the country even further. That's what I also saw in that letter uh, on display from President Trump, that there's a frustration uh, where, where D.C. is at. And I, I agree with that frustration. This shouldn't be about partisan politics day in and day out. We need to get things done for the American people, like what we did today in our committee with Mexico-Canada's trade agreement. That was a huge win for America's farmers and manufacturers. Imagine if that's what he was talking about all the time. Imagine if he was just going after the Democrats for not signing it and going through the different conditions that, in his opinion, bettered the American workers' situation. Instead well, of what he chooses to do but he did talk most about of that, his time. Chris. But I mean, he it's a minority his of his time, Tom. He I talks know. about himself and his people and his perceived opponents. That's what he well, does. And it's well, not, that's not a criticism. Yeah. It's not even a commentary. It's an observation. He shouldn't be bothering his time with me. And you know it. No president would. No president would ever deign to give a journalist that kind of attention, let alone to set him up as an enemy of the democracy. We are where we are, Tom, because... He has been given full freedom to exercise avarice with everything he says and does. Well, I disagree with that because he's in office because the American people elected him and he'll be standing for re-election based on what the American people do. And, and I think fundamentally that's where the American people want this to go and us to do our work in Congress that impacts their lives on a positive basis day to day. And what you see today in regards to the impeachment uh, process, I see it all just evolving and devolving into this partisan, political, us versus them, and getting through this as quick but as possible. But who says that more it. than the president? does. I know he was legitimately elected. I keep yeah. making the argument to him and his defenders, stop saying that Russian interference means you didn't win. You did win. You crushed it in the Electoral College. It opened up all our eyes to the realities that it's not just about how many, it's about where they are and which polls to monitor. And by the way, we we're making that mistake again early on until we started looking state to state. I know the president's strong. I, that, that doesn't hurt me to say. What worries me, Tom, is he is the divider most often. Not you, not the head, not, not even Nunes, not Jordan. They take their cues from him. None of you call him out and say, Mr. President, don't say this. You say you say it in private. You know that's not enough, and, Tom. And, well, and I've said it publicly before when I've criticized on certain comments uh, here and there. But the, the bottom line is I keep the personal conversation between me and the president, and I think that's uh, more appropriate. I think... Uh, what we need to be doing is focusing more on where can we unite the country, and that's where I can control in my day-to-day -day activity, and that's what I try to do, and but I appreciate you recognizing that, But how can you unite when the team leader is talking about the teeth of Nancy Pelosi oh. and saying that Democrats are enemies of democracy and any reporter who says something he doesn't like is Chris. an enemy of the people? But this goes both ways. I mean, you see Democratic members, uh, you know, we're going to impeach the mother blank and we're going to engage in this type of partisan. We've got to impeach him now so he doesn't get reelected. And re -elected. we call them out and, and we and say I that they're totally premature and we say that they're rude. And now people like me will say, man, you were talking this impeachment talk all through Mueller. He gave you those 10 counts. Now you don't even include them. You're talking about how it's a bribery. Now you don't even include it. Listen, they're not even in power, but they must be held to account as well. I'm saying if you guys don't talk about your own. You talk about everybody else. It's just him, Tom. You never, ever step out of line where the president is involved. What makes you think he would ever toe a line other than the one he wants to walk? Well, 
you know, I disagree with your assessment of our actions. I'll leave that again. The, the record's clear that people can judge that in our own district. Uh, but at the end of the day, I, I look at this impeachment. This is a historical vote. Uh, Chris. And when we talk about impeachment, I think when you had uh, Mr. Podesta on there, uh, Bill Clinton's situation, the, the lessons of Clinton, you know, the president, President Trump is, has the presumption of innocence. And when you look at the prior uh, impeachments, Clinton and uh, Nixon, uh, are, I think are a great test case to look at. Uh, when you look at what they were involved with, there was no legitimate government function by the president in those cases. It was a burglary at Watergate. It was lying under oath about sex in the Oval Office with an intern. You know, that, that to me, where's the government operation there? Here we had the legitimate issue of corruption and with a presumption of innocent, I think we can get through this rather quickly and uh, I think that's what the Senate's going to do. I hear the alarm for the vote there. I don't want to make you late for the job. I would argue it in reverse. Because this was so intimately involved with the function of government, it's exactly what the founders were worried about. But we didn't need to be here. If he admitted he did this the wrong way, but he wanted to fight interference and he didn't have any corrupt intent, that people were wrong about that, he wouldn't be where he is tonight. Congressman Tom Reed, I welcome you on this show always to make the argument, and I wish you the best for the holy days. Happy holidays to you very much, to your family and everyone else there, Chris. Thank you, Congressman. All right, another story. You know, look, we know what's going to happen tomorrow. It's not the only thing going on. There is crime going on across this country that is going in the wrong direction. Property crimes, but also homicide. And this crime that just happened in New York City that people are starting to catch on to, I haven't seen anything like it in decades. College freshmen, Tessa majors, walking through a place in New York City, right by Columbia University, that's supposed to be safe, that has been safe. Not only is she murdered, not only is it brutal, but it involves kids in a way that I haven't seen since the Central Park Five. The mystery here and which way it's taking us is staggering. They had a 13-year-old suspect in court today. He was saying things that people couldn't even understand. It shook them. The details next. All right, we have new details tonight. I don't know if you've heard about this. It just happened last week, Wednesday. Uh, This Barnard College, that's Columbia University, a freshman named Tessa Majors, just starting school up from Virginia, murdered. A judge ruled today the case against a 13-year-old suspect will move forward. Police say there are other teens involved. They think it's about three right now, but they're not sure. I've seen this happen before. And now they're getting surveillance video, and it's raising all kinds of questions about the depravity that's going on in this city, the rising crime rates that are across this country, and what makes kids do something like this. Let's dig in. We have Paul Callen and Chris Mahandi. Now, Paul was involved in the Central Park Five. He represented a couple of the officers uh, that were investigating the case that actually wound up reversing uh, the findings. So he remembers that period very well. But Paul, you know, you're a mentor of mine. Feel free to back me off it. But we know the rates are going up around the country. We know that in this city we're seeing it. We know that homicide is even ticking up. But a crime like this When is the last time you heard of 13 and 14 year olds knifing somebody this way? When the 13 year old described it, people in the court couldn't even take it. Well, it's a horrible, horrible crime and it sends shivers uh, across New York City. And you're right. 
It brings back the memory of the Central Park Five case, which uh, I represented two of the assistant district attorneys who reinvestigated the, the case and found that the confessions were inaccurate and the wrong people were arrested in that case. But that case terrified the city because it happened in a beloved park and it really emphasized how dangerous the city had become. And just to give you an indication, when I was a homicide assistant DA in Brooklyn in the 1970s, the homicide rate was about 1,600 per year. It then peaked mm. at over 2,000 per year in 1980. Last year, you know what it was? It was 289 homicides. It had fallen to 289. And now police are saying that violent crime may be up as much as 25 percent in New York City. And you're right. It is a trend that we're seeing nationally. Right. And look, remember, what made us scared at the time, these were the wrong kids that they got. And one of the reasons that they were falsely convicted, of course, it was color. Of course, it was socioeconomic. Of course, it was about policing culture at that time. But wilding was real. Kids running around the city like a pack of dogs doing terrible things was real. White kids, brown kids, all kinds of kids. So that fed it. Chris, that takes me to you in the psychology of this. Um, I haven't seen it since then. And once again, the shock value is there. Kids don't do this. Adults this have to form that kind of mens rea, that mental component. What do we understand from psychology? Well, that's what's so troubling about this is that you usually see kids engaging in, you know, property crime, mm -hmm. you know, simple mistakes of, of youth. You know, shoplifting is a pretty common one, maybe some, you know, use of alcohol or experimentation with drugs. This is embracing a different level of criminality. This is adult level aggression, the willingness to strike out against adults to go there, apparently what's alleged is with the intent um, to rob people as part of a group, whether it was a gang or just operating kind of like with a gang-like ethos, that's what's so disturbing. Also more common for that, kids. Kids often yeah. operate more in packs. It gives them confidence. But I want you to play on one other point, Chris. Right. Let's say that uh, this kid's telling the truth, all right? It's a little right. convenient that he touched the knife, but he didn't use the knife. He gave it to somebody else, whatever. Um, the idea that they passed up a guy and then targeted the woman, but it was still a robbery, and they get right. her in a chokehold and it goes wrong. They stab her over a yes. dozen times by the early reporting estimate. That's a different way to kill than pulling a trigger one, two or three times. It's up close. It's personal. It's hands on. It's hands on. And it it really speaks to a level of lacking of empathy, um, you know, not really caring about other people and just the level of commitment that you're right is is qualitatively different than what we what we usually see in kids of this developmental phase. And that speaks to what we in my profession often refer to as conduct disorder, which is the junior version of what people grow up into being the adult version of antisocial personality are. You know, there's a lot of those folks that are in prison. It starts someplace. Mm. And unfortunately, I think what we have is a group of kids that may be you know, heading down that path um, again, qualitatively different. Right. No, I hear you. But, right. You know, Paul, here's the part that troubles me about this. They're looking for two other young kids. Um, they had one on Friday night. Maybe that's the kid. Maybe they're looking for a third. They're a little soft on the numbers and that's fine. They can't find this kid. That's unusual um, to not find a kid that age. You know, they're vulnerable. They don't have resources and connections the way, you know, somebody who's connected to an organization or an adult might. What's your read on that? It's very, very unusual. And I have to say, Chris, 
the picture that was described by the 13-year-old who has been apprehended of the knife going into Tessa Majors repeatedly and feathers flying from her coat—presumably she was wearing some kind of a down jacket, we'll find out later on—is just a haunting, her crying for help. The kids were aware of what she was going through. They made a decision. And not being able to find a kid suggests that somebody is helping to hide them. And that's why I think this is an open window into what's going on here, and we're going to learn more, and every piece of it is troubling as hell. Paul Callen, thank you. Dr. Chris Mahandi, thank you very much, both of you. All right. Thank you. The clock's ticking down. Uh, The president, in all likelihood, is going to be impeached. He doesn't have to say that he did anything wrong, but if he had, it would have changed him. I don't have an argument. I gave it to you at the top. But I do have a concern I want to share with you tonight because we're only going to be here once. Everything changes tomorrow. That's next. In all likelihood, it ends tomorrow. President Trump will bear the stain of being impeached, only the second in modern history. I do not envy his position or his fate, but I'm not worried about Donald Trump. He'll be fine. He always is. I worry about the rest of us. To be clear, we all know this is about what this president did and said. But where we are right now is really because of how he handled it. Mr. President, do you take any responsibility for the fact that you're about to be impeached? No, I don't take any. uh, Zero, uh, to put it mildly. And that's the problem. He said it. He did it. But remember, this is the man who has said he never needed to ask God for forgiveness. So he's being true to form. If he had admitted some wrongdoing and argued that his intentions were not this corruption that the Democrats say, he very well may not be where he is. But instead, he's filled with enmity. It's everybody but him. And you know what? Now it's become contagious. I'm not an impartial juror. I would anticipate we will have a largely partisan outcome in the Senate. I'm not impartial about this at all. Just so you know, McConnell and all the other senators are going to take an oath And here's what it says. I solemnly swear or affirm that in all things appertaining to the trial of the impeachment of Donald J. Trump now pending, I will do impartial justice according to the Constitution and laws. So help me, God. He just told you that his fealty is to Trump. And that comes before the article of faith I just read you, his oath to you and what we're about. Just because he's straight about it doesn't mean it's a straight thing to say. The Republicans are little more than Trump's shadow. The Democrats are part of this toxic tension as well. And it's hard for anybody to seem like they're better than what's going on around them. We don't even know what their eventual message or message with their messenger is going to be. So I argue we can't look to electeds to get us out of this. It's got to be on us to make things better. The practical argument is, look, let's be honest. These people mostly do what you allow them to do. You say, I am out. If anyone has more insults and then insights, if you don't have plans, if there's no progress, I won't for any, vote for anyone in here. That would work, but it doesn't happen. We reward opposition. On a deeper level, we can't keep hating people because we disagree with them. It's not American. It doesn't just cheapen our politics. It cheapens us. It's poisoning us. And here's the biggest reason. What we got here is fragile. I've had the blessing of traveling this world as a journalist. Nobody 
is trying to do what we have succeeded at here. It's an experiment because it's a work in progress. Nobody's ever even tried what we're doing. Combining faces and places, united by no real even common tongue or culture or tradition, just a respect for bigger things, freedom secured by law. We don't have the similarities that make it easy. So right now, we must do what's hard. We cannot keep succumbing to the ease of animus. You have to be better than what you oppose. You have to be what you know matters more than division. You have to remember to disagree with decency. Me too. Be what your family should see in you, not some hyenas on social media. Tomorrow changes everything. Where do you want to go after this? It's a question of what you want. And God bless we all make the right choice. So look, while this is going on, one of the concerns is what it means for our enemies. What's Putin doing during this? How about what's his boat doing off eastern shores? Bolo! Bolo, be on the lookout. A Russian spy ship is operating in what they call an unsafe manner along the East Coast. U.S. military says they're sailing without running lights, failing to respond to radio calls just off the coast of South Carolina and Florida. Officials suspect the ship is mapping undersea Internet cables, gathering intelligence on U.S. nuclear submarines. The obvious, Putin is not our pal. All right, that's all for us. Time for CNN Tonight with the man D. Lemon. And he and I were talking about the need to uh, awaken people to the reality of what just happened in this city because it is reflective of what's happening around the country with rising crime. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.